There are a number of very important reasons to expand family planning programs. Access to contraception is a key reproductive right, which in turn is a fundamental human right. The ability for people to have control over their own bodies and over their own reproductive destinies is truly essential. So there are a lot of really important arguments to be made for family planning based in, in this understanding of reproductive rights, of freedom, and of autonomy. But those aren't the only arguments that people make in favor of family planning, and this is where I think we start to run into a little bit of trouble. Reproductive health care trends, norms, and policies in the United States shape global reproductive health in a big way, through mechanisms like international aid and family planning programs. To help us learn about how these U.S. policies can have such an influence and what that can mean for individual reproductive health across the world, I talked to Dr. Lee Senderovich. Dr. Senderovich is a postdoctoral health disparities research scholar at the University of Wisconsin. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's HealthCast. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Lee Senderovich to the Women's HealthCast today to talk about global reproductive health. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a lot of opportunity to watch some presentations you've given, read publications you've written about um, global reproductive health, and it made me really want to talk to you about some ways that um, health policy that's happening here can kind of spread out and affect global reproductive health. Um, But before we get into that topic, so you're also a health disparities research scholar here in our Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and I'd love to learn a little bit about what your day job looks like and what a research scholar like you kind of does. Yeah, I'm so fortunate to be a part of the Health Disparities Research Scholars Program here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's a program funded by the National Institutes of Health. Um, to support independent research around health disparities and inequity. And I have lots of protected time to focus on my own research, and I get lots of great mentorship from across the university um, to help me focus on my research on global reproductive health and rights. And in practice, what this means is that I spend a lot of time at my computer um, analyzing data, drafting papers, writing grants, having meetings, you know, the usual job things. Um, In the pre-COVID times, it also meant that I got to do a lot of traveling, though for obvious reasons that's been put on hold. Um, I I hope to uh, be able to do that again uh, when it's safe. Um, And I also get to mentor students and do a little bit of teaching. So it's a really, it's a really fun job. I, um, I reached out to you today because I well, yeah, I think I mentioned I want to learn a little bit more about how health trends, norms, and policies in family planning and reproductive health in, I'm going to say the U.S. because that's the context that I'm the most familiar with, but I'm sure it's a little bit more broad than that, can kind of affect global reproductive health in some pretty significant ways. Um, when we're thinking about family planning programs in particular, uh, what are some of the arguments that are often made in favor of, of growing and expanding um, family planning programs? There are a number of very important reasons to expand family planning programs. Access to contraception is a key reproductive right, which in turn is a fundamental human right. The ability for people to have control over their own bodies and over their own reproductive destinies is truly essential. Family planning programs can help people exercise the right to control their reproduction, can help 
decouple sex from reproduction so that people can enjoy healthy and pleasurable sex lives without worrying so much about pregnancy and can help people form the types of families that they seek to form, whether that's uh, no children, a couple children, a lot of children. Um, it really just helps people create the families they want. So there are a lot of really important arguments to be made for family planning based in um, based in, in this understanding of reproductive rights, of freedom, and of autonomy. But those aren't the only arguments that people make in favor of family planning. And this is where I think we start to run into a little bit of trouble. Lots of family planning advocates will argue that family planning is really important for external reasons that are not really specifically about the well-being of the individual user. So this might sound something like uh, we need to increase family planning in order to stop global warming or we need to increase family planning to reduce poverty. Folks might be familiar with arguments um, that we need to increase contraceptive use among welfare recipients as a means to stop the so-called cycle of poverty. These are what I call in my work instrumentalist arguments for family planning because they treat women's bodies and women's fertility as sort of like control knobs that we can twist and turn to engineer the type of social outcomes that we want to see. And it's important to note that a key factor in these instrumentalist arguments for family planning is that they rely not only on expanding access to contraception, but on expanding uptake of contraception. And that's a really key difference for these more rights-based arguments, um, because from a rights-based perspective, we'd really want to leave it up to the individual person whether or not they want to use a, a contraceptive method. Where do some of those more instrumentalist arguments have their origins? Like, where where did some of the, the discourse, the rhetoric, the thoughts of family planning, like, start? And um, also, has it changed over time? Yeah, well, we can actually go all the way back to 1798 to try to understand the origins of the contemporary family planning movement. In 1798, an English cleric named Thomas Malthus published a very famous book called An Essay on the Principle of Population. And in this work, Malthus wrote of his concern that the food supply was growing slowly while the human population was growing exponentially. And it seemed inevitable to Malthus that if nothing else changed, the human population would soon run out of food to eat and that there would be mass starvation and famine and conflict and all kinds of bad things would ensue. Another really important idea in the origin of family planning is eugenics. Eugenics was a broad movement with many different threads, but overall eugenicists, um, it's fair to say that eugenicists sought to promote reproduction among white people, able-bodied people, people from European backgrounds, wealthy people, well-educated people, high-class people, Promoting reproduction among the quote-unquote right people was called positive eugenics. And then there was what they called negative eugenics, which sought to prevent reproduction among the quote-unquote wrong people, those who weren't white, those who weren't able-bodied, those who didn't sort of meet this uh, racist, sexist, ableist idea of the ideal uh, gene. And eugenicists had a particular interest in um, preventing reproduction among uh, those who had physical or mental disabilities, um, the poor, they thought that they could eliminate poverty by essentially eliminating the poor through breeding. 
Um, and so, like Malthus, eugenicists are convinced that they can improve human welfare by controlling reproduction and by manipulating population patterns. But in this case, there's a specific targeting of certain sociodemographic groups. And also for eugenicists, like for, like for Malthus, um, back in the late 1800s and the first half of the 1900s, there still weren't a ton of contraceptive options. Um, so what we see um, in eugenics is a lot of forced sterilizations among groups that eugenicists deemed undesirable. Um, and this is such a classic example of scientific racism and the cloaking of extremely racist, ableist, misogynistic practices in the pseudoscientific veneer that gave it a lot of legitimacy. That legitimacy started to wear off after World War II when the full scope of the Nazis' eugenic project came to light and their project to quote-unquote purify their gene pool, pool became well-known. So the type of overt large-scale eugenics projects that we saw in the first half of the 20th century really fall by the wayside um, in the second half of the 20th century. But we can still find many examples of eugenic sterilizations, quote-unquote eugenic sterilizations, happening today among marginalized groups. In fact, um, the civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer talked about how the forced sterilization of black women in the U.S. South were so common that they were euphemistically referred to as Mississippi appendectomies. So we have this Malthusian interest in limiting population growth overall and a eugenic interest in ensuring um, that sort of only the quote-unquote right people are procreating and the quote-unquote wrong people aren't. And then there's a third current in the history of family planning that's really important to mention, which is feminism and women's liberation. And this is probably the history of family planning that most people are familiar with, and it's a really important part of the story. Uh, before there was widespread access to contraception, women were often at the mercy of their fertility in many ways. Um, there were few ways for women to have sex for pleasure without risking pregnancy, and even fewer ways to do so respectably that wouldn't you know, ruin someone's good reputation. Uh, lots of couples ended up having more children than they wanted, and the responsibility for raising those children often fell solely on women. This ended up limiting educational opportunities, it limited professional opportunities, um, and it just limited the ability for women to be really full participants in society. There was a real feeling among a certain kind of 20th century feminist that access to safe contraception would be a total game changer for women. And they were right. What's important to note is that all three of these uh, currents or threads in the history of family planning were related and interconnected. So Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, she was a crusader for family planning both because she thought it would advance the cause of women and because she held some eugenicist views. So a lot of family planning programs were conceived with the express goal of reducing uh, population growth, um, with the express goal of uh, promoting the right kind of, of population and with the express goal of promoting women's rights. Um, and now, even though uh, virtually all family planning programs have disavowed eugenics and have disavowed population control, um, a lot of the remnants of that intellectual history still remain in how those organizations are structured. I, um, in prep for this conversation, was reading um, one of your papers where you mentioned, um, I'm going to get the details a little bit wrong, but I trust that you can kind of fill in the gaps that I don't quite remember. Uh, but a shift in, I want to say maybe the 1980s, uh, 
but you can correct me if that's not quite right, um, into, t- into talking about family planning as um, a vehicle for autonomy, for personal choice and um, pers- kind of personal liberation. And so the way we talk about it changes, but something you mentioned is that still the way that some family planning programs are measured on their success hasn't necessarily um, fully evolved in that way, hasn't necessarily like caught up with this idea that the, the good outcome is that anyone who wants to access uh, contraception can get the kind that they want and also doesn't have to use it if they don't want to. But I guess how are, um, how are family planning programs in some ways, how do they measure success? How are they evaluating how a program is working, whether it's meeting goals? Yeah, I think the the moment that you're referring to was actually in 1994. It was called the International Conference on Population and Development. And it was a really important conference that took place in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, some folks call it the Cairo Conference. And it really was this uh, sort of watershed moment for the family planning world where uh, feminists from around the world came together and basically told the population controllers, you can't do population control anymore. <laughs> um, we, ha- we have to change how and why we do family planning programs. Um, and there's a lot, there's been a lot written on how such a progressive outcome was achieved at this conference, but most people will do agree that the program of action that came out of that conference is sort of like the high watermark for reproductive health and rights and really does focus, as you say, on on autonomy and reproductive health and, and disavows population control as a as a rationale for family planning programs. Um, but but precisely as you say, um, it's easy to change what we say, and it's a lot harder to change what we do. And part of that is because the way that ideology is baked into our institutions can often be invisible to us. Um, and so even though since 1994, family planning programs have almost universally claimed to be based um, on the promotion of reproductive health and rights, they still tend to, let's say, measure things in the way that they did in the 1960s and 70s when they were still overtly pursuing population control. One example that's very clear is a measure that a lot of programs in the Global South use called CYP, which stands for Couple Years of Protection. And we measure family planning programs by how many CYP they can get, how many couple years of protection. So for example, if a family planning program provides a one-month packet of pills to someone, they get credit for slightly less than one month of protection, which translates to one a little bit less than one-twelfth of a CYP. If they provide a copper IUD, it's estimated that the IUD will be used for over four years, so they get credit for over four CYP. And donors, and let's say I'm a donor to a, to a project, I give a project X many dollars, and then at the end of the day, I want to know what did they buy with my money? How many CYP did they get? Um, so this means in practice that the more long-acting or permanent methods like sterilization or IUDs that a program provides, the more successful it looks in terms of CYP. What CYP doesn't capture is how many people wanted sterilization or an IUD. Um, So it creates this incentive to 
um, promote the longest acting methods as opposed to promoting the methods that really meet the user's individual needs. Another really common measure is what we're calling MCP, or modern contraceptive prevalence. This is the proportion of the population that's using a so-called modern method over the population as a whole. And programs really want to try to maximize MCP, so the more women using modern contraception, the better. The problem with these definitions is that they prioritize uptake over access. If we think back to when these programs and these metrics were developed, there was this population control rationale at the time. People were less concerned with autonomy and choice and rights than they were with fertility reduction. But now that family planning programs want to prioritize autonomy and choice, it's hard to change the systems that are in place and to reconceptualize what, ex and to reconceptualize what a successful program looks like. So it's hard to conceptualize how to measure programs um, if we move beyond just like a fertility reduction or an uptake kind of measurement. But I'm wondering if you have ideas or suggestions or thoughts about different uh, different ways to look at what success means for these programs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if we think about the old way of measuring things that only measures contraceptive uptake through things like modern contraceptive prevalence. And we imagine a community where everyone wants to have a baby and no one wants to use contraception. A family planning program in that community would have two choices. Respect everyone's wishes, but have low MCP and look like a total failure on paper or disregard people's wishes and foist unwanted contraceptive methods on them and then have a higher MCP that looks great to program evaluators. If there's a forced sterilization or a coerced IUD, our current metrics can capture the use of the highly effective method, but they can't capture anything related to the wantedness of the method, whether the user was able to make an informed choice about the method, whether the user was able to choose from a broad contraceptive method mix, or whether the choice of the method was made without inducements or coercion. So in my work, I'm developing what I call a new indicator of contraceptive autonomy. The indicator puts no value judgment on um, the use of a contraceptive method, but instead on whether the choice to use or not to use was made with informed choice, full choice, and free choice. So a person who made an autonomous choice not to use a method is considered just as much a success as a person who made an autonomous choice uh, to use a method. Likewise, a person who is using a method without free, full, or informed choice is considered a programmatic failure, as is a person who is not using a method but didn't have free choice, full choice, or informed choice when they chose not to use. This new metric will hopefully get rid of the perverse incentives that family planning programs have to meet contraceptive uptake targets at the expense of rights-based care. Can you tell me a little bit more about what free choice, full choice, informed choice really means? Yeah, it's a great question. When I was trying to think about how to define contraceptive autonomy, um, I started getting really bogged down in questions of, you know, free will. And I wanted to avoid, you know, going all the way back to the ancient Greek philosophers. Um, <laughs> and so really sought to find a concise understanding of what are the components that people need to have in order to make a decision and then to realize that decision. Because more goes into contraceptive decision-making than just what you want. Um, so the first thing was 
that a person has to have is information. They have to know that family planning exists, for one thing. They have to know about different methods. Um, they have to know uh, neutral, unbiased information about family planning. So they can't just know the good things and they can't just know the bad things, but they have to know, they have to have, you know, some some idea of what's good and some idea of what's bad. Um, looking for some sort of like symmetry in the in the type of information they have. Um, uh, and uh, for users of a contraceptive method, we also say for that part of informed choice is knowing a little bit about their own method. So um, if, if they use a method, they should know a little bit about what side effects to expect. And if it's the kind of method that you need a provider to help you remove, you should also have some information about removal services in addition to, um, to everything else. So that's sort of the idea of informed choice. The idea of full choice is really around access. Um, so uh, are, is, a, is a broad range of methods available to you? and affordable to you. Um, and then all, we also have some additional criteria for these uh, users of provider-dependent methods around the availability and affordability of removal services. And then free choice is really sort of this more classical conception of autonomy, which is like, are you using this method against your will or are you not using a method against your will? Um, did you make the choice voluntarily? Were you offered any inducements or incentives to make your decision? Um, those are the those are the questions that go into measuring the the free choice category. So, looking at reproductive coercion, you've used the word coercion a couple times, and I know I've read some of your publications on how family planning programs, um, especially I'm thinking the ones that are focused on long acting methods like implants or intrauterine devices can sometimes like unintentionally veer towards coercion. Um, I guess to start with, can you define reproductive coercion and give us like a really good basis of what we're talking about? Absolutely. Uh, reproductive coercion is really any activity or behavior or policy that interferes with someone's autonomous decision-making when it comes to their reproductive health or well-being. And reproductive coercion comes in a lot of different forms. Some folks might be familiar with the types of reproductive coercion that take uh, place within a couple. A common example of this in like a cisgender heterosexual relationship is stealthing when the male partner removes his condom and continues sex with the female partner without her knowledge. Um, that's been in the news a lot uh, in the past couple of years. Other types of contraceptive sabotage like mess messing with someone's oral contraceptive pills. That's another example of uh, reproductive coercion that can take place within an intimate relationship. My approach to studying reproductive coercion, though, focuses not just on the interpersonal behaviors that contribute to reproductive coercion, but on the structural factors within a health system or a legal system. So if we think back to how eugenics and population control have informed the types of reproductive policies in our health system or in our legal system, we can start to understand how and why reproductive coercion is so structural. What that means in practice is that we don't need anyone to be acting out of like ill will or malice or spite in order for reproductive coercion to be taking place. Reproductive coercion can take place even when there are well-intentioned people who are just going about their day and doing their job. They can be inadvertently perpetrating reproductive coercion since the policies that they're, um, that they're enacting are, are designed that way. 
I know this is such a huge conversation also in like the reproductive justice movement um, in the U.S. So, and it reminds, it also reminds me or makes me think about um, publications of yours that I've read where, you know, the intent with like talking up really encouraging LARC use, long acting reversible contraceptive use is that, yeah, it's like, it's very easy, kind of a set it and forget it system. Um, it's incredibly effective. And those are really great things. And if that's like the only method you talk about, have you kind of, or, or if it's the one that you talk about the most positively, um, through no ill intent or ill will, like you said, have you kind of steered someone toward a, a more limited choice if if that's like your push and is this kind of counseling it doesn't feel very balanced necessarily it feels like it could be kind of a, a form of unintentional reproductive coercion to me did do you think that's the case yes absolutely um i'm actually working on a study right now that evaluates a program that was intended to bring postpartum iud's um, to five hospitals in Tanzania. And this was a really well-intentioned project implemented by well-intentioned people. At no point in this program was there anyone, you know, sort of evil or, or bad who intended to do wrong or hurt women. And yet the program was designed in such a way that the main outcome that it would be judged on was how many women were counseled on the IUD and how many women decided to use the IUD. Those were the two outcomes um, of interest uh, to, to determine whether or not the project was going to be a success. And what that meant in practice was that providers, again, without ill intent, started to emphasize the IUD just a little bit more and started to talk about the other methods just a little bit less. Um, and when we evaluated the program at the end, we found that women who were exposed to this IUD intervention had more than five times the odds of being counseled on just the IUD and no other methods compared to women in the control group. So access to condoms, implants, pills, uh, lactational amenorrhea, fertility awareness based methods, like you name the method, every single other method, uh, counseling on every single other method went down and counseling on IUD went up. Um, so, you know, this type of biased counseling towards, towards the method that the provider wants you um, to use that might not immediately look like reproductive coercion to some people because it's not violent. It's not forceful. Um, and so one thing I'd love for listeners to take away from this is that not all reproductive coercion is overt. In fact, the vast majority of reproductive coercion is really subtle and comes from this sort of everyday behavior, um, a lot of which has been really normalized in our health systems. So we really have to sort of change what we're looking for when we think about reproductive coercion, not to just look for sort of these um, headline-grabbing rights abuses, but the more day-to-day -day ways um, that policies and programs are reducing people's access to high-quality reproductive health care. So you mentioned that not every type of reproductive coercion or every instance is like the flashy headline-grabber, but it did make me think about one um, that is kind of a flashy headline grabber right now that I think probably a lot of people can kind of identify with too, uh, which is um, Britney Spears 
conservatorship and how that has affected her free choice when it comes to um, like reproductive autonomy. And I know you I know you spoke with a publication, a news a news outlet about this within the last few weeks, and you had some really great things to say. Yeah, I mean, I think it was heartbreaking for all of us to hear Brittany talking about the fact that she wanted more children and that um, due to her conservatorship, she couldn't get authorization to get a doctor to remove her IUD. And I, th- I, I think you're right that this really hit home for a lot of us just because, you know, the the right to have children when you want to is such a, it's such an intimate, uh, it's such an intimate thing that I think we can all identify with and really goes to the heart of, 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 of reproductive justice. And I think the, the Britney Spears example is a perfect way of showing how, um, you, you know, eugenic ideas of ableism and, and, um, uh, keeping people with disabilities, whether they be physical or, 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 or mental or, or intellectual, um, from reproducing, those laws are still very much in effect um, in different ways throughout the United States um, and, and elsewhere. Um, and I think really shows how structural reproductive coercion can be because it's not that Britney Spears had like a mean lawyer or a mean judge or a mean doctor who was intending to cause harm or, you know, woke up in the morning and thought, I'm really going to, you know, keep people from having babies today. Um, But rather through policy, through legal processes, through health care norms, um, people's desires are subverted and they are people's own desires for their own reproduction are considered perhaps secondary to what doctors think is best or judges think is best or conservators think is best. Um, so yeah, I think that was a really important, um, uh, maybe perhaps a watershed moment in the, the public's understanding of reproductive coercion. As you started to talk about how much sometimes what other entities think is best for someone else's body. It also made me think of another another way that, based on my understanding, my reading, U.S. policy and U.S. norms can affect reproductive autonomy worldwide. Um, so I'm thinking of something called the Mexico City policy or the global gag rule. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what that is? Sure. The Mexico City policy is a U.S. government policy that affects um, the foreign aid that our government gives to help global health programs around the world. And it's officially called the U.S. Uh, excuse me, it's officially called the Mexico City policy because the Reagan administration first unveiled it at a conference in Mexico City in 1984. But in order to understand the Mexico City policy, I want to even go back a step behind before 1984. Um, to 1973, when Roe v. Wade was passed, in the immediate wake of Roe v. Wade, uh, the U.S. Congress passed something called the Helms Amendment, um, which has been in continuous effect since 1973, and it bars all U.S. foreign assistance from funding abortions. So if people know about the Hyde Amendment here in the U.S. that bars 
um, public funding for abortion in, you know, Medicaid programs and that kind of thing. This is the international equivalent of that. No U.S. funding can be used to pay for abortion services abroad. So we have that starting in 1973. And then in 1984, we have the Mexico City policy that starts to go even further. Under the Mexico City policy, not only can an organization uh, that receive that receives U.S. funding not use those U.S. funds to provide abortion services, but they can't even use funding from another source to provide abortion services or even advocate for or talk about abortion rights. And this prohibition on referrals and advocacy is why the policy is popularly known as the global gag rule. It effectively gags health organizations from even talking about abortion if they don't want to lose their, um, their funding. So since 1984, every Republican president has instated the gag rule and every Democratic president has repealed it, resulting in this really unstable funding environment for reproductive health organizations. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because it seems like every, you know, every four to eight years, then funding that like a global aid organization might depend on could be turned on, could be turned off. Um, So I'm, I'm curious if you have a sense then of like, how does that affect aid organizations in terms of like, do you just decide, I guess, all the time, this isn't something that we're going to, well, we will never counsel about abortion in any way to make sure that our funding is never um, at risk or, you know, never in jeopardy? Or uh, do we just kind of get ready for like a super bumpy ride in some years uh, for some presidential administrations, you know, our budget's fine. And then in the next ones, we're going to have to figure out we're going to have four to eight extremely lean years. Um, do you have a, I guess, do you have a sense of how, how organizations kind of weather that? And then also like, what does that mean for individuals who might rely on those organizations for their health care? It's, it's not either or it's yes. And right. It's all of those things. Um, The global gag rule, the sort of flip-flopping creates this atmosphere of extreme uncertainty that makes it incredibly difficult for NGOs and and health organizations um, and health programs to plan for the future. Programs have to keep, can either be like started or stopped, or as you said, it can have this chilling effect where organizations decide like, this is just not worth it. We're not even going to bother with anything related to abortion. Um, When funding is lost, clinics are closed and individuals lose access to services. Um, So I remember when I was studying the global gag rule in Senegal in 2007, which was the last um, year of the George W. Bush administration when the gag rule was in effect, I was talking to the, um, the president of the local Planned Parenthood affiliate And she was telling me that she had to close two of the clinics that were the most rural clinics, which were like both the clinics that served the like the hardest to reach populations, the populations that had the fewest other options, but also the clinics that brought in the least amount of funding that like could fund themselves the least. So when she lost funding, she had to make that really hard decision to close those clinics. So where the individuals who relied on those clinics Uh, went to get services after they closed? We don't know. And if you think about um, then, you know, four years later, or I guess in in 2007, it was just the next year um, uh, when Barack Obama was elected, you think about what 
if once funding is restored, what are the costs then for, you know, you can't just turn back a, a clinic on. Uh, there are I mean, uh, there are tons of costs associated with recruiting a doctor or a clinician back to that rural area. And the people have tried for a long time to calculate quantitatively the costs of the gag rule, either monetarily or in terms of lives lost or abortions. Um, and there have been some excellent studies on that. But I really feel like we, we can never fully calculate the ripple effects of the gag rule. One really underappreciated effect is that it can create schisms and a lot of tension within communities as some organizations decide to sign the gag rule to preserve their programs and some choose not to sign the gag rule on principle. And it can almost sort of tear communities apart um, and create schisms that last long after um, the gag rule is repealed. So there's there's so much harm caused by this policy and literally no gain. It's really a lose-lose <laughs> lose all around. Do you have, um, in your research and your reading, have you come across examples of how this policy, this global gag rule, and especially being sort of turned off and then turned back on repeatedly, um, how it's affected reproductive health worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I just mentioned, there are a million ways to try to evaluate the effects of this, whether it's on, uh, fi- you know, financial evaluations or or number of deaths associated with the gag rule. I, there have been a lot of different attempts, but one of the most um, striking ones to me was a 2019 study in The Lancet Global Health by Nina Brooks and her colleagues, um, who found that in defunding the reproductive health programs, the effect of the gag rule has been that fewer women uh, use an effective method of modern contraception, which in turn resulted in a 40% increase in the abortion rate in sub-Saharan Africa. So even for those who institute the gag rule, presumably with the intention of reducing abortions, it's not. It's having the complete opposite effect of that. It's actually increasing abortions, um, and coming at a high cost for um, other reproductive health outcomes. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, um, so I know who listens. I can tell a little bit about who listens to this podcast. So I know that the majority of our audience are people in the U.S. Um, and we've talked about you know reproductive autonomy and global health, and I think. Sometimes as a person in the U.S., it's a little easy to be like, well, yeah, but what does that mean for me? Um, so I would I would love your perspective on what it's really important for U.S. listeners to understand about reproductive autonomy and global reproductive health. Well, we're all connected, aren't we? Um, the role of the U.S. in the larger global health community can hardly be overstated. Formal government mechanisms like USAID, as well as private charities um, led by philanthrocapitalists like the Gates Foundation, have such an outsized role in dictating health policy and setting the global health agenda. And so as Americans, I think we have a huge role to play in holding these organizations accountable for policies that harm rather than promote reproductive well-being. We tend to export some of our most harmful and backwards policies and impose them on folks living in the global south under the banner of global health and development. That's not to say that we shouldn't 
uh, we should just be isolationist and wall ourselves off from everyone. There's so much we can do in solidarity uh, with people living in the global south to promote reproductive health and well-being worldwide. But it can't be based in these neocolonial top-down development approaches. We really need to ensure that everything we're doing is rooted in um, principles of health equity, dignity, and justice. Dr. Senderovich, thank you so much. I have enjoyed our time immensely. I feel like I've learned a ton. I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. On the next Women's Health Cast, we'll talk to Dr. Michael Beninati about women's health and COVID vaccine myths. I'm going to spoil one for you right now. No, the COVID vaccine does not cause infertility. Listen to our next episode for more myth-busting. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening.